You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. You have to have complete balance and happiness because success, and I'm putting success in quotes, means many different things to people. But if you're looking for fame and fortune, let's just narrow it down. Success is like the fun house. The floors are moving, the mirrors are warped. The it's, you know, it's one fun room after another. You're stuck in a maze. Very few people slip through and get to that quote, fame and fortune. And if you're betting your happiness on it, you're gonna be a very unhappy person. You have to let go and have many other things in your life and just be happy. That was Amy Sewell. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative, movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today on the podcast, I sync up with Amy Sewell, the talented, award-winning documentarian and filmmaker, entrepreneur, and author of the hot new novel, Pocket Eights, a page-turning, psycho-thriller, and thought-provoking winter read. You may have seen her famous documentary, Mad Hot Ballroom, on Showtime, read her book, She's Out There, The Next Generation of Presidential Candidates, or seen her documentary, What's Your Point, Honey? But now she's shifting gears. We talk about her new novel, how she picked the topics of euthanasia and poker, her pivot from nonfiction and documentaries to writing fiction, and she shares some great advice for creators and entrepreneurs. And of course, I sync up with Amy about the exercise and wellness that fuels her for success and empowers her with creativity. Get ready for a super fun and eye-opening conversation. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's super easy. Head over to wherever you listen to the podcast, Click on the Apple Podcast app. Click on the Marnie on the Move podcast. Scroll through. Click on the five stars and write a review. Before we dive into our conversation, shout out to our sponsors at Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. They are my go-to for understanding my inner health, looking at my blood levels, and getting great nutritional insight. Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take control of your health and wellness. Unlock the power of your potential. And use our code CHEERSMARNIE for 25% off. Now, on to my conversation with Amy. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so psyched that we finally are getting to do this after months of talking about it. And it's been so exciting to be behind the scenes 
working with you to get this book out into the world. It's such a great book. I think so too. It's such a fast read and it immediately transports readers into the worlds of both poker and euthanasia, two things that I don't really know anything about until I read this book, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. What inspired you to write this novel? Why these topics and why now? So I will get to that in one second without going too far off on a tangent. But the reason I cracked a joke about I Like It Too is because even though I've made a couple movies and I've written a couple different books, fiction and nonfiction, I shop at Target. I read USA Today. I consider myself just kind of like, you know, Amy of the neighborhood, whether it's Michigan or Iowa or Illinois or New York City. I feel like I'm kind of that every gal. So me to say something like that is kind of like, you know, it kind of shows my core, which is which is humble. And yet I'm surrounded by, quote, New York City which is doing and being and, and achieving, et cetera. So I said that as a joke only because I feel like I'm an accessible type of person. So yes, what possessed me to write this book is it was a fiction book. So I wrote my first poem in 1969. I was six years old. I was always drawn toward poetry and fiction. And that is, I have tons of short stories under my bed, et cetera, typed on an old typewriter. I've always been drawn to fiction, but intimidated by it. So we all get on with our lives, as as you can see or hear. I have gotten on with my life. I'm in my 59th year this year. But it is kind of uh, now or never to publish this book. Now, that's to publish it, to birth it, B-I-R-T-H and B-E-R-T-H. I have been writing this book for 16 years. And the reason it's on the two subjects, the reason it's on the two topics of euthanasia and poker is because long ago when you're writing fiction and taking all those fiction classes everywhere ad nauseum uh, about writing fiction, they say, write what you know. So I'm not dead, so I don't know euthanasia firsthand. However, I've been fascinated by the topic of euthanasia forever. And I can sum that up basically in two sentences in a minute. And I'm also a poker player. So I decided to incorporate the two. Uh, The two sentences about euthanasia are this. I had a very smart friend say to me once, long ago, we treat our pets better than we treat our humans when they're not well. We put them down to sleep. We have little ceremonies. We bury them. We do all these things. And we never put that much thought into human beings. And it's always been kind of an enigma to me, you know, a, a puzzle. Why? You know, why? So I decided to dive down into that topic. Mix it up with poker. Pocket Eights is a novel about choice, chance, timing, and luck. It upends preconceived notions about life, death, family, family roots, and friends. It opens the door to very complex, hard to discuss, but relevant and timely topics. Tell me about Dutch, your lead character, Dutch has a has a pretty interesting background when she's young, also when she's older. She happens to weave two things, uh, playing poker and helping people self-deliver. It's another term for euthanasia. So it's it really gets into the, the nitty-gritty of that, quote, profession. I put that in quotes because it's not legal. I think it's only legal in eight states, and even then you're jumping through hoops. 
but she's very passionate about what she does. Uh, she starts to go off track a bit, which I call off her game, when she has to go home and help a good friend self-deliver. And this is all wrapped around a twist of her having a child with special needs, but even beyond special needs. So it, it's a pretty intricate story. It's a fast read, but an intricate story. Where did the inspiration for Dutch's character, your lead character, come from? Is that personal? Is it a mix of people? No, Dutch is definitely my younger self. Uh, I wasn't playing poker young that young, but I imagine. So let me just say this about characters and with fiction writers, and I can only speak for myself, but I'm assuming they're usually a compilation of a lot of different characters. Most likely with Dutch, it's who I wanted to be or who I saw myself being at the age of 14, the young Dutch. And that's what drove me with young Dutch. With the older Dutch, add some years, add a little bit of road and wisdom. And the older Dutch is actually the projection of thought or when you when you're in your deepest thinking walking a dog or or you're staring out a window to me the older dutch is all those things coming out on paper in the book dutch says that she's off her game and kind of like a parallel between poker and real life so specifically in this fiction book it's a parallel exactly because she starts to get off her game, helping people, quote, self-deliver, which is the new terminology that Derek Humphreys, who wrote all the books, Final Exit, The Good Death, The Good Guide to Euthanasia, etc. It's called self-delivery, which always kind of made me laugh a little bit about being delivered. But euthanasia is self-delivery. Yeah, it's very thought-provoking. As the story unfolds, you get to discover who Dutch is and why did you pick poker? So I play a lot of games, euchre, poker. I played bridge for a while. My mother was a big bridge player. My husband plays poker. Poker to me is, is quick enough, but it's all about tells. Poker to me is everything. You could you can be skilled enough to be playing against some great players like in Vegas or at an underground club in New York City or even with friends, usually friends who make a lot of money are my favorite targets because some of these finance guys or gals, I like to take their money. So, but the difference is, is that it's all about reading people. And if you've ever waitressed and I've waitressed or bartended or done anything in the service industry, it's about, you know, reading sales podcasting you you have to read people and that's what poker is all about so to me poker is more about the skill you know there's more to it than skill it's about being able to read the players at the table so i i play poker i play poker so it was natural to write about poker and i think the biggest challenge was simplifying it so that people could understand it just a regular reader and when Dutch has to go in and perform these self-deliveries on people, she has to basically go through a litmus test of figuring out whether she can do this with them, if they're ready, if they're, if they're worthy, like in the sense that they, they're ready to go. She's got kind of a, a, a template of, you know, do they have a terminal illness? Can they mentally handle it, et cetera? So there's thought that goes into it. You know, the fact it's an under, like poker, there's underground clubs. It's an underground profession. It's only legal in eight states and I think 
Switzerland and the Netherlands, but you have to be a resident. It's legal in Uganda. It's weird. And it brings people into a world that they don't know exists. Now, people may say, well, how do how do I know it exists? Well, it's all I've always been fascinated with euthanasia right. and a mother-in-law who thought it should be legal. I had a neighbor who was involved in a group called Compassion and Choices that I joined who's advocating making it legal. We spend a lot of time treating our pets better than we treat human beings when it comes to death. We have these birth ceremonies and these marriage ceremonies and these showers, wedding showers or passage of life or right to life. I don't even know, like 16, 12 confirmations, all these celebrations, but we don't think enough about getting ready to die. And it's so important because it's such a crossover into an important next phase, so to speak. So there were two areas that just interest me, euthanasia, and, and, and I intertwined it with poker. The book takes place where you grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Did, why did you pick that as a backdrop for the book? You know, again, I go back to the number one lesson in every fiction course is write what you know. I know poker. I know euthanasia because I was with my mother in her last month of her life as she accelerated her death. My mother-in-law, as I said, was into it. Other people talk about it all the time. It's becoming more and more of a topic of conversation, especially after three years of COVID and people talking about having meaningful passings. Gross Point, Michigan. I wasn't born there. I was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, me and Ashton Pusher. It's the home of Quaker Oats. I remember waking up when I was like three and smelling Quaker Oats brewing in the background. But eventually after a small stay in Chicago, Illinois, my family moved to Gross Point, Michigan to be near the lake. We're sailors. And I, when we moved there, I knew immediately, and I was young, that there were two sides to the track there. There were the Fords and the Strohs and the Buells and the sibling lumber people. I mean, I think Lee Iacocca wasn't even allowed to live there in 1979 because he was Italian. And then there was the other side of the tracks. And I usually hung out with all those kids. And they're pretty well represented in the book. I love characters that are on the outside looking in all the time. And things. I, I think I felt that way growing up there. But I'll also say this. It was a great place to grow up. And I was very, very fortunate. And I still have many good friends there. They are awesome people. But it's a, it's a strange place. I mean, you had millionaires, sons who the family money came from steal and, steal and die treatment plans. So you had the educated and the uneducated. You had the wealthy and the not wealthy. I mean, maybe it's a lot of places, but it's what I, what I knew. And I always thought it was an interesting place. Because it's in the book, you, it's how you talk about it too. Yes, and I think the difference is always dental work. The friends I hung out with never got their chipped, tooth, their chipped teeth fixed. And then my sister and I were just talking about how, you know, we'd go to we'd go to high school and into the parking lot would come, you know, Corvettes and and Jaguars, like some wealthy parents bought their kids cars for their 16th birthday. So there was this group that was put together that was very different. However, I will say this, thinking about this in hindsight, and maybe this is true of all neighborhoods, but everybody always had each other's back. So if, if some father was a lawyer and some kid got in trouble for X, Y, and Z, that kid who had the father who was the lawyer was asking the father, can you help my friend out? Yeah. There, there was some, there was a lot of camaraderie. Yeah. 
that happened. And so, and that I think is unique, that kind of mix. How did you get into playing poker? Where did that begin for you? So I started playing with my husband and we've been married for almost 30 years. And we played with friends and we go to Vegas a lot. He's a much better player, higher stakes. I'm more about kind of getting the feel for the table and, uh, and playing. We play with a bunch of finance guys, which has been wonderful because, again, I like to take their money and gals. And uh, more lately, you know, more recently, more women are involved in playing poker. How do you get good? You just have to play. You have to play and you have to lose. And, and you have to lose for money because you don't learn how to play until you're trying to hang on to your money. Okay. Got it. So like life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a metaphor for life. You know, I used to always say, yeah. you're not, you're not a real New Yorker until you've been sued, until you've sued somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's true. I mean, New York definitely is a fun place to live. One of my listeners had a question and they wanted to know, and this is a major spoiler alert. So anyone who has not read the book, just put, just fast forward right now. Where was Dutch going with her daughter at the end of the book? Because we don't find out. So there's a lot of little twists and turns in the book. I want to leave that up to the reader because I also, uh, which I'll, I'll get to a couple little things, but in general, I don't think people need to be spoon fed. In fact, I, I want to leave something for the imagination. If I describe a character, I'll give some description, but I like people to kind of stop and think, oh yeah, I, my mother was like that, or I, I knew a woman like that across the hall, or, oh yeah, my friend has tons of pictures of all her friends, but not of her husband's mm -hmm. or husband. So I like to leave the door open for people to daydream for a minute when they're reading and kind of think of how this relates to their lives. The same thing with the, the men that Dutch was involved in. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to leave the door open Lovers are beautiful people. I mean, it's nice to have a partner, male, female, he, she, they, whatever. But it's also nice to go back to the past and think of these people you were involved with. There's something beautiful about each and every one of them. So when I talk about when Dutch has these flashbacks or these encounters with lovers, you know, they're beautiful encounters. That's why I once said, in a weird way, even though this book is about chance and death, and it's a little dark. It is a psycho thriller. You know, it's also in a way a love story. It's a love story about Dutch with his daughter, a love story about Dutch with a former lover, and really a love story about Dutch and herself. She has to come to terms with who she is and what she's doing in order to have that car ride with her daughter in the end. And that's why where she's going matters, but it doesn't matter. Every reader will come to their own conclusion and probably really, really want to know. And I'll probably never, never tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's such a great book. As I was reading it, I was kind of visualizing it as a movie or as a series on Netflix or Hulu. Who would you cast in different roles of this if it was a movie? That is such a tough question because I have to tell you, I watch a lot of TV these days. Yeah. And I love watching movies, obviously. There are so many amazing actresses, actors, female, male. I mean, 
the range is wide. I would rather, this would be way more fun to have a contest, to have readers say who they would want to play Dutch. There, I mean, I remember watching a movie years ago and also I think she was in the TV show uh, Six Feet Under for a while. Lily Taylor is one of my favorite characters. I would love for her to be an older Dutch. Young Dutch, I can't even go there. I mean, young Dutch, I, I think Elle Fanning's too old for young Dutch. You know what I mean? Like Dutch is 14 and a real rabble rouser, a real rebel, you know? I don't know who that would be. But the older Dutch, I think Lily Taylor. But honestly, like the world has changed. There are yeah. so many amazing actresses. I'm constantly looking at actri- actresses thinking, oh, oh, could that be Dutch? What's all most more interesting to me and a little bit sexual, if you want to go there, is there's this scene with Pete, her old lover. And to me, Pete is so sexy. And it, it's, it's not a love scene. I mean, the, the most central part is his head goes into her neck. And, you know, when you're young, absolutely, it's all about sex. It's great. Sex is great. When you're older, there are times when my husband and I fall asleep holding hands. And to me, that means the most to me. But when Pete is in her neck, I think, oh, my God, who would that be? And I have fantasies about the actor in Hollywood who would be that right now it's the one from this is us milo milo ventimiglia yes he'd be good for a younger pete but they'd have to make him younger but for an old pete we got to get up into our 50s here right like i mean who who is that for dutch i was thinking nicole kidman you know like every character she ever plays is like a little bit off he's listen she's awesome i would like her to have a couple wrinkles if she's going to play this oh yeah okay she doesn't have any <laughs> But I'm watching, like, I'm watching the morning show. I mean, Steve Carell could play with longer hair, could play a nice older Pete. Okay. There's rich characters here. Like, even even Dutch's older sister, Kat. Yes. Be, can be somebody. And then the, and then Pete's friend, Danny. Like, Danny and Shane. Two really rich characters. And, and Abigail, the woman who goes on to blackmail her. Well, so, I mean, yeah. I know you're already thinking of turning this into a movie. You have one of your daughters is working on, is a screenwriter. She's working on a screenplay, right? Yes. So I have twin girls who are 24 and I love them both. And I'm proud of both of them. One is waiting to hear any day now from one of the 11 law schools that she's applied to, to matriculate in the fall of 2022. So her name is Rocky, Ra- Raquel Sewell. Uh, she goes by Rocky. She has a, a pit bull mix named Wanda, who's my grandpuppy, who I love. And she wants to be a defense lawyer who uses her law degree as a sword to slay all the evil out there with immigration or reproductive rights. And I feel like any defense lawyer with the name, name, with the name of Rocky and a pit bull named Wanda is going to go far. Yes. So that, there's my little accolades to the future lawyer. If she goes into entertainment law, she can uh, defend me from anyone who possibly sues and says that they're Dutch or they're Pete, which they're not. So, because it's fiction. Right. But the other one is just finishing her MFA at UCLA in screenwriting, fiction. Yeah, screenwriting, obviously. And I'm a documentary filmmaker. She took a leap and went into fiction. She writes like Joan Didion. I hate to say this because I hate when I do this, you know, I 
I hate when other people do this to me, but I can't help it. You have to do this because people have to understand. She writes like Joan Didion, but a little bit darker and more dysfunctional. Family dysfunction, etc. So I promised her she would have the rights to adapt Pocket Aids, and she's done it. And she's already written it, and it's very, very good. She takes it a step further, and I'm going to leave it at that because, you know, anybody that wants to grab those rights and work with her, it's going to be a better movie than the book. Beyond being a super fun, fast winter read, this book is very thought-provoking, particularly on the topic of euthanasia, which we've talked about throughout the podcast already. You know, the preconceived notions about life and death and the quality of life and family. Do you think that euthanasia should be legal? And if so, under what conditions? That's a tricky question, euthanasia being legal or not. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you what, I think it comes down to most things in life. You know, where are your feet, in what shoes, and where are you standing? It's so personal. For example, there's a woman currently in the news right now, written up in Bloomberg News, who has ALS and would like to perform self-delivery with her family and not have it be a crime. And she wants to have a beautiful ceremony and end it her life, her way with some self-determination. On the other hand, I happen to be flipping channels because that's what I do. Yeah. And I go from MSNBC, love Rachel Maddow, to CNN, love Anderson Cooper, to Fox News even. And I happen to switch on Fox News at a time where there was an ex-coach with ALS talking about having ALS and that every day mattered to him. And his son was on with him. Right. And he was a beautiful person and a beautiful soul. So my point is this, it's really personal, but it should be talked about. States should make it legal so that people should have an opportunity for it to be carried out without it being a crime. Yeah. Families and the person with the illness can make that choice. The bottom line is religion will always come into play with this. My mother, my mother-in-law was Jewish. She felt it was very important to have self-determination with the end of her life. But it's not an easy sell to Catholics. My sister's Catholic. My niece is Catholic. You know, it's up to God to end life. So all I'm saying is this. The book makes you think about things. It doesn't make you make choices. It just makes you make, it just makes you think about self-determination and what role do we have in it. It really did get me thinking. So thank you for that. And, you know, beyond this book, I mean, storytelling is not new to you, but fiction is. How is this genre of expression and writing different? And why fiction? Why now? Fiction has always been something I wanted to do. I always wanted to write fiction. It's daunting to me. I can relate it to this. I saw a great movie. I know. I think maybe it's getting mixed reviews, but it was recommended to me. I watched it with my sister this weekend, The Tender Bar. It's awesome. It, the, the name of the movie doesn't come at the end, and it's it's Ben Affleck. It's actually directed by George Clooney. And I have to tell you something. I, the author, I know it's based on a book. It was adapted from a book. And I thought it was a great movie because it tells a very beautiful, simple story. And I have questions for that author. If you're going to have a podcast with that author on it, I have a couple questions for him. But he did a great service to the movie industry of taking 
a memoir and putting it visually on film. And I thank him for that. It was a beautiful story. So that movie reminded me of something because I was sitting with my sister who is a huge reader. I love my sister. She reads everything. And in the movie, The Tender Bar, he read everything. And I was sitting there thinking, nah, 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 you know, like Debbie, you know, Debbie Downer. I thought, hold on a minute, because people always say writers read, writers read. Well, I read. I do read, but I don't read like my sister. And after the movie was over, I turned to my sister and I said, let me tell you something really about writers. If they read all the time, they'd never write for two reasons. Number one, there'd be no time to write. Writing takes a lot of time. It took me 16 years to write this fiction book. Number two, if you read other readers, other writers, if you read other writers, you will be intimidated and you will never write. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. There are so many beautiful writers out there. If I keep reading, I would never write. Sooner or later, you have to say, fuck it. You have to sit down and write. You just have to write. And it takes a long time to write. It's like all things in business and life. If you, you can have all these ideas and you can start a business. And if you're not focused, if you don't put your nose down and like really dive into getting stuff done and you look around too much, I mean, there's a fine line, right? Between research and looking at the creative landscape and then actually having your own idea and sticking to that and not getting, don't self-sabotage yourself by judging your quality of writing or your business or your brand against other people's because you're not other people. But that is like, I mean, I think that's like, I want to say the plight of the artist or of any entrepreneur or business owner or even like in athleticism. I mean, we all are guilty of it. But right. yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I think with the podcast too, like I definitely you know, listen to a lot of podcasts before I started my podcast. And that's kind of what inspired me to do this. But now as I'm doing this, I can't listen to as many because I will like take myself out. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's really, it's hard to be an artist. I mean, and, and you know, this fiction book is not your first work of art, right? I mean, you are so famous for Mad Hot Ballroom, the documentary, the award-winning documentary that you created so, you know, tell me a little bit about that, because it's totally different than this. Like, what was the idea behind Mad Hop Ballroom? So, yes, Mad Hop Ballroom. Amazing. So the way that they came about is I was actually writing for the Tribeca trip. I had just had twins. I think they were three or four. I thought I have to do something again. So I thought I'd give my, sh you know, give it my best shot at the local paper. I was hired on to write local stories. I have to tell you right now, I'm a horrible journalist. I should never, ever, ever think that I could ever be a journalist. I have too many adjectives that go into a story to ever be a journalist. And with the Tribeca Trib, and I, God love him, he's a great guy, Carl Glassman. He's the owner, the editor, the photographer, and the publisher. So I go to write about a little school who's doing ballroom dancing. Yeah. And he tells me to write 1,500 words, and I write 30,000 words. Okay. And he says, he says, I got to get it down to 1500 words because I have to put photos in this. And I thought, well, good luck with that. So I basically went to an old friend who was in production. Yeah. 
and working her butt off in uh, industrial films and trying to make it. She, and um, I said to Marilyn Agrello, I have this idea for a, a documentary, it, a story. It's basically a story that would be better told visually. And do you want to do it with me? And we did. We scouted the schools. We chose three to follow and then go back to the, the winner of the former year. We got an amazing editor, Sabina Crambiel, an amazing director of photography, Claudia Roshka Robinson. I think she just goes by Claudia Roshka now. And I'll tell you something. We made that documentary. We started shooting on February 4th. We got into the school system, which nobody had ever been allowed to film in the schools during school time. We got it in the can with a loss, like not a lawsuit, but a threat from New Line Cinema on us about it because Pierre Dulane had sold his life rights story for Take the Lead with Antonio Banderas. Anyway, we got it in the can. We got it edited. We didn't get into Sundance. We got into Slamdance. It was a Cinderella story, and it went on to be in 200 theaters across the country and is still kind of a classic. It's on Showtime, always at Thanksgiving. And I will tell you the bottom line with that documentary, it was timing, topic, and team, and luck. You'll note you'll note a parallel. We got lucky with that documentary. And again, the story of Pocket Eights is about timing and luck. What advice do you have for other creators, writers, filmmakers? Well, there's three things, and they're very simple. And I'm going to go back to your, your when you were talking about success. There's no overnight success stories. There really are not. People are not discovered overnight. They've been working at things a very, very long time. Even if they're discovered as a model at a football game, like that one young woman was, She's been looking very good for a very long time. It takes a lot of work to look good, to, to be beautiful. I mean, believe me, I look at beautiful people all the time and think they're beautiful, but a lot of work went into making them look beautiful right now. And I think they'll appreciate me saying that, to be honest. Really, three things go into any project. One is it's all hard work. You just have to buckle down and do it. And most of it is not glamorous. It's behind the scenes. It's dirty. You're rolling up your sleeves. You, you just have to get it done. You have to throw it down, throw it up, and, and get it done. Number two, it, you're never alone. It always takes a team. You have to buy, you know, making a documentary is certainly way more difficult because it takes an amazing team to do it with collaboration. Right. But writing a book. People have to help you edit it. People have to be mean to you and tell you this part is horrible. You lost me here. You can't have any yes friends. The third thing, which I think is the most important thing, is you have to have balance in your life. So if you're writing a book, make sure that you're also doing something else. You have to have complete balance and happiness because success, and I'm putting success in quotes, means many different things to people. But if you're looking for fame and fortune, let's just narrow it down. Success is like the fun house. The floors are moving. The mirrors are warped. The it's, you know, it's one fun room after another. You're stuck in a maze. Very few people slip through yeah. and get to that quote, fame and fortune. And if you're betting your happiness on it, you're going to be a very unhappy person. You have to let go and have many other things in your life and just be be happy. I'm going to circle back to the very beginning of this podcast where you yeah. said it was a great book. And I went, I like it too. 
you better like your own stuff because if nobody else likes it, you have to like it and be thankful that you gave it a place in your life to live. That's awesome. That's such great advice. You're so ahead of the curve. You created this book of essays way before women were running for president in the U.S. And it's called She's Out There, The Next Generation of Presidential Candidates. It was published by Lifetime Media in in 2009. This was revolutionary. And where did this come from? Because this was so ahead of its time. So the book came from a movie called What's Your Point, Honey, which was my second feature documentary, which I I co-directed. I got involved in directing uh, along with producing. And that movie was basically, in a nutshell, about seven women running for president who basically were brought into the forefront of even thinking of running for president through a contest through Cosmo Girl. Now, if that sounds crazy in today's day and age, it is. But since we've always been winning beauty contests to get to the next stage in our lives, it's not so silly. And it wasn't so long ago. It was 2008. So this documentary, what I wanted to do was wrap that concept around the concept of women being equal. And it came down to one line in that movie. And it's based on Ruth Rosen, who's an expert in equality and feminism, saying in her 30 years of being a professor at Berkeley, not once has a male student ever approached her and asked her how he was ever going to balance it all. And yet every student, every female student, Mm -hmm. every year has always said to her, how am I going to be an architect and have a family? How am I going to be a lawyer and have a family? How am I going to be, how am I going to run for president and raise children and have a, and have a partner? And that was the key to that movie, which led to the book, which made me think, well, who is going to run for president and who is our first female president going to be? And the very first essay in that book is by a young woman, Fiona Lowenstein from Harlem, who says, because it was all based around the year by 2024, we would have already seen our first female president. She says, I hope I am not the first female president in 2024. And every girl in that book, I think, was at an age. We have some younger ones in there just to throw in some spite. But every girl was at an age where she would be eligible to be president in 2024. And yet we still have not seen a female president in this country. And I am going to say this. I am a huge supporter of a nonpartisan organization called Vote Run Lead. They're a 501c3. They promote helping both sides, all sides of women run for office, every single office in the country, all 538,000 elected positions, even the librarian and dog catcher in Kalamazoo is an elected position. And my point is this, our first female president might be a Republican. And all I'm going to say is this, at the risk of my Democrat friends chasing me down the street with a baseball bat, is and, and believe me, my, I, my sister, my niece, I have many Republican friends in Gross Point, Michigan. It's okay because we are going to need women at the table who know about caring for elder, caring, caring for our elder, caring for children, caring for our sick. And it might be a conservative woman, but that woman will know what that's all about. And once we open the gates to that top position being held by a woman, we'll never look back. The future is feminine. 
Like I would, I would like it to represent all our issues. I would love that woman to be right in the middle because I think we all sit in the middle, the the party of common sense. That's my party. My party is the party of common sense. My religion is the sense of the common. So I just, you know, that's what I would like. Where's your passion for writing and directing and being in this world of entertainment and documentaries and filmmaking begin? So it began when my father told me I couldn't go to art school that I would starve. I had to get a job and make money. I've been working since I was 13. I was a busboy at an Italian restaurant. It went on from there. I had to pay for half my college education. And that was back in the days when you had to go in-state. And in-state paying half only meant $1,300. But I had to make that that summer. I mowed lawns. I waitressed, et cetera. So I think the point is, is there's always been some creative in my family. And I always had to do it on the side because I had to still, quote, make that living. To me, it's become a pattern. And it goes back to one of your questions about success. And success to me is about being balanced. You know, it's important to work at something, to have purpose, to give back. I know this sounds crazy, but I love to work because I love to pay taxes. I may give to charities here and there, and I may volunteer for my two favorite nonprofits, Boat Run Lead and Real Works. But I have somebody else making the decision that every dollar I make, that tax that they're taking from me goes to somebody who needs it. And I have no problem with that, whether I'm making 20 grand a year or whether I'm making 100 grand a year. To me, it's important that that's part of giving back. It's not socialism. It's called being a responsible citizen and caring for our neighbor. The passion basically comes from having a day job where I have to work and I, I take great pride in a daily job and take great pride into making money and paying taxes to help others who need help. But having that day job makes me run to be creative. Got and it. that's when I pour it out into writing or filmmaking or I like right now I'm collaborating on documentary as a co-producer about the dance world and dancers who are actually social justice advocates at the Gibney Company. Yeah, what are you reading and watching? Yeah. There are so many books that I've read and have loved. For example, one of my favorite books is Goldfinch. Yeah. Uh, Donna Tartt has great books. Yeah. Secret History. They're very long. Uh, On nonfiction, I read Jill Lepore's These Truths about the history of this country, which was excellent. I have to tell you that if you think the country's crazy now, it's never not been crazy. So fight the fight. You know, it's a crazy country. For fiction, I've been into two books these days. One is the Neapolitan series uh, of novels by Alana Ferrante. It starts with my brilliant friend. It is there's four books. They are beautiful, beautiful books about a young girl growing up in Italy in the 40s, and they continue. They cover so many things that are relevant today. There's a parallel, even though they were from a different time. The one thing that bothers me about Alana Ferrante is it's a pseudonym, and it's going to kill me if it's written by a man, so I don't ever want to know. Okay. I just got into book four, but I had to take a break because I just was turned on to this new book by... Kursana Ramsetti, she's an MFA from Emerson in fiction writing. Her book is Dava Shastri's Last Day. The reason I got tuned into it very quickly is it's a similar topic about self-delivery, about euthanasia, mm-hmm. but it's based on the future. And she's an excellent writer, and it's very, very interesting, but I've been enjoying her book on the same topic. But I'm happy because 
There, one, mine is kind of a throwback to the 70s in the middle of it, and hers is looking into 2044. Like, she's going into the future with this. How does exercise and wellness empower you for success in everything else that you're doing, whether it's creative projects or family or just life in general? That's a great question, and I have to tell you, it's so important in my life because when I was little, there was a TV show, and I think it was called Billy, and Patty Duke was in it, and she was a runner. She, she ran track and did hurdles, and she used to get this beat in her head. She had this blonde hair, and she used to get this beat and then take off. And her father was a huge supporter of her success in this TV show. People over 45 will know this TV show, this, right. this movie called Billy. I remember thinking, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become physically active. I'm going to do sports. I'm going to run. I'm going to do all these things, sail, swim. I was a swimmer. I would get this beat in my head. And when I would get that in my head, in anything that I did from a very young age till now, that's when I think creatively. I think of the whole movie in my head. I can think of the scene in the book that I need to write. And I will come home and then do it. It's all done up there and it's always done during working out. And that's during running when I used to run a lot. That was my favorite. I used to get a hot city biking. 12 to 15 miles every two or three days doing yoga, 20 steps West in another room since COVID anytime I'm athletic or doing something where I'm getting in that zone, it just adds to my creativity. Do you listen to music when you work out? I have a wide selection of music. I happen to, people are very surprised, but I like country music too. I like all kinds of rap music. I like all kinds of seventies music. But if I really need to get into things, it's Tom Petty. Okay. Tom Petty and only Tom Petty all the way. And the, Do you the have reason, a favorite Tom Petty run song? Um, learning to Fly, when, when I'm kind of coming down and ready to come back and stick things on paper or, or get ready to go into an edit room, et cetera. And uh, Running Down a Dream, which when I'm gearing up to get out there to go film or do something like that, when I have to raise my spirits, most of it's trying to calm me down to sit down, to sit still. To, to do the work. And the way this wellness to me, like staying healthy and well, ties into this book, Pocket Aids, which is so important to me, is we spend our whole life trying to be healthy, trying to be well, having our wellness lead to a spiritual wellness, you know, mind, body, and soul, that it comes across in the book, Pocket Aids is spiritual, because it's not only, our life should not only be about living well. One of the themes of the book is about dying well. Yeah. And it's about planning for that. And it sounds sad, but it's not. We don't think about it, but it's really true. No, it's actually a beautiful thing. I, I actually think if you haven't witnessed somebody, you know, if you haven't held somebody's hand when they're dying, it's yeah. not a scary thing. It's a beautiful thing. And it only goes to show you how important it is to be at peace when you're at that juncture in your life. Yeah. It really is a juncture. It is a, it is a bridge from this life to whatever you think the afterlife is. Amazing. That was so awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Amy. Thank you for having me, Marnie. Thanks again for tuning into Marnie on the move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move.
for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of, If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.